From the book of Hebrews. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. You know, I'm really grateful to be worshiping with you all this morning. Um, Like Father Matt and maybe some of you, I wasn't raised in the Anglican tradition. Uh, If I had walked into a room like this with an altar like that, I would have walked immediately out the other way. Uh, I was raised in a church, and I think the best way that I can describe it to you was we had our own smoke machine, right? But it wasn't a thurible, and uh, there wasn't any use of incense. So it was a bit of a different atmosphere, and I'm sure you're all familiar with it. But there there were a lot of great things about that church, and one of the things that I really appreciated was that there was this call to worship that they had at the beginning. There was a, um, a pastor who'd get up with his guitar and he would say, um, <clears throat> let us worship God today. And he'd say it for two things. He said, let us worship God today for who he is and for what he has done. Let us worship God for who he is and what he has done. And that call, that simple invitation to worship is found in the movement of our text in Hebrews this morning. A call to worship God for two things, for who he is, for his very nature, and for what he has done for us. And so I've got two points. By the way, I went to a Presbyterian seminary, and what that means is we preach structured in point sermons. So if I say point one, point two, I'm just keeping myself organized. It might be different than Father Matt, I'm not sure. So we're going to do two points today. The first point in our sermon is going to be a tale of two mountains, and then point two is acceptable worship. All right, a tale tale of two mountains and acceptable worship. Beginning in verse 18 of our text that we just heard, the author reminds believers of what it is to encounter the living God. And he uses the experience of the Hebrews at the foot of Mount Sinai. You remember the story of Moses, right? Bringing the Israelites, bringing the Hebrews out of Egypt, and they get to Mount Sinai. And what they experience is this incredibly welcoming warm, joyful reception, right? Everybody's just hugging it. No, that's not what they experienced at all. It was a terrifying thing. If you go back in Exodus 18 through 20, uh, Hebrews gives us these descriptors, and you can find them all throughout there. It's uh, they experience an untouchable mountain, right? We heard in our text that they touch it, they would die. They experience a burning with fire, that it was covered with darkness and gloom, a ferocious storm, a trumpet blast, and a voice so mighty, number seven, and terrible that even Moses, the one who'd been leading them and interacting and speaking with God, shook with fear. They had gotten close to the Lord, and that was their experience. Now, unless you live at the foot of an active volcano, it's kind of too difficult to imagine what that experience is like, right? Like here, we're kind of protected in this cafeteria. We're not really uh, exper- exposed to the elements as Father Matt is right now as he does his bear wrestling or whatever he's doing at the top of the mountain. It's a different environment. So it's kind of hard for us to imagine what that's like to be living there. The closest thing that I could think of when I was preparing the sermon was, um, I'm a a natural-born Floridian, uh, Central Florida, born and raised, and so we're used to storms. And one of the things that my dad and I would do is, um, when I was young, he would put the ladder up against the house when a storm was rolling in, and he would call me up. I must have been about six years old at the time, and we'd go lay on the roof, and we'd kind of watch the storm clouds roll in. And we kind of, you know, feel the wind pick up. And, you know, when the, when the bucket-sized drops of rain, you know, those first drops of rain would start to hit us, then it was time for us to kind of pack it up and head inside. But there was one year where we had a hurricane roll across the state. 
And it was the eye of the storm, and you know how that works, right? It gets calm for a minute, and so my dad gets this great idea. And you have to know something about my dad. We all had machetes when we were four years old, so that's the kind of dad my dad is. Um, great man. But uh, we, uh, the eye of the storm comes in, we get on, get on our roof, and we look at it. And I'm so enthralled, and he's so enthralled, and so excited to be a part of it that we wait a few minutes too long. And if you know how the eye of the hurricane works, right, that's only, you're only halfway done at that point. And so the southern wall hit. And we weren't prepared for it. We weren't ready for it. A gust of wind knocked the ladder over, so now we're stuck on the roof. That's awesome. My mom was thrilled, I can tell you, right? But the eye of the wall hits, and, and the wind picks up, and things fall, and we start to get genuinely afraid. He's afraid for my safety. You know, I'm afraid because I'm losing my mind. I'm not sure what's going on. And, and what had happened was, when the hail started to fall, we realized, well, we had waited too long. We had gotten too close. The storm was now here. And I think that's what happens a little bit with the Hebrews when they approach God's holy mountain. Because if you remember the story, they've seen the hand of God at work, right? They followed him in the, in the fire. They followed him in the cloud. They saw him produce manna. They even saw his mighty hand in the ten plagues of Egypt, right? Like, they, they knew how God worked. But when they got to the foot of Mount Sinai, they got a little bit too close, And yes, they had seen that God was for them, right? That he was acting for their good. That his intent was to save them and not destroy them. But as they were approaching his very presence, they were terrified. Picking up on this experience of God, theologian Rudolf Otto came up with this term called the numinous. Have you heard of this? The numinous. And the way he describes the numinous is he says that this is having somebody who has the, uh, the quality of numinous is having the power to make you feel Fearful, yet fascinated. Awed, and yet attracted. Overwhelmed, and yet inspired. It's a uniquely divine property. It's the fullness of the holiness of God. You know, we read at the end of our text that our God is a consuming fire. And the reason I keep using these illustrations that come from nature is because that's the most awesome force that we have, and even that pales in comparison to God. Do you remember watching any footage of the California wildfires that would rage and consume towns in an instant and just blow up and surround people? I remember watching footage of police you know, going through the streets trying to rescue people at the last minute, and it was all dark and gloom, and just the might of that power. And that's the experience of the numinous. The Hebrews were drawn to and fixated at the foot of Mount Sinai, but they were unable and unwilling to go further. And I think what we might forget as Christians is that this this tale, this experience at the foot of Mount Sinai was for thousands of years the universal human experience with the divine. That was what it was to approach God, period. And you see this in Scripture, right? What What does Job do when he finally sees the Lord? Right? He repents in dust and ashes. He says, you know, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes see you, and I repent in dust and ashes. And I know you all have talked about the holiness of God. I mean, this is, this is Father Matt we're talking about, right? I know you understand that. There's, there's Isaiah, right? What does he do? Woe is me in Isaiah 6, right? I'm a man of unclean lips, and he falls down before the Lord. Peter, do you remember in the Gospels where Jesus reveals his divinity because they're, they cast their nets over the other side of the boat, right? And, and they, they pull him up on, on what Jesus said. And what is, what is Peter's response to God? It's he hits the deck, quite literally because he's in a boat. He hits the deck and he says, depart from me, O Lord. And John, in Revelation, he falls down as though dead. So what's the universal human experience on approaching the divine? It's, it's, it's terror. 
awe, fascination, but terror. But, says the writer of Hebrews, this is not your mountain. And I think this is fascinating for us to realize. Mount Sinai is not your mountain. You, as he's writing to Christians, to brothers and sisters in Christ, he says, you have come to Mount Sion. And he differentiates the two because he lists seven other descriptors. And these are the seven descriptors he gives of, of Mount Sion. He says, Mount Sion is, one, the heavenly city of the living God. Two, there are countless angels in joyful celebration. The assembly of those whose names are written in the book of life, who are registered by God. Four, the presence of God the judge, which we're going to get back to in a minute. The spirits of the righteous, the presence of Jesus, the mediator, and the blood of Christ that makes our presence possible. It's a completely different image. It's a different mountain. And I want to unpack those images for a second because, you know, honestly, we could spend a sermon on each one of these descriptors. We're not going to do that. I've got my time limit about 18 minutes, I think. But, but I, I do want to get into these images for a second. To experience Mount Zion is to dwell in the city of God's presence. We hear that in Revelation, right? God will dwell with man. It's to witness angels and the victory feast. The feast that they're talking about, the celebration, was the same feast that the Olympic athletes, the ones who won the champions, would go to afterward. You know, you couldn't enter unless you had special privileges, unless you were actually a champion of your particular event, and it was this joyous, raucous celebration. So it's to experience this victory feast with the angels, a victory feast of those who have conquered. And it's to see that your name is on the list and that your name was placed onto the list by God himself. I think that's just an incredible image. I mean, who would have thought that a nightclub and a bouncer would prefigure heaven, right? But, that's, but that is very much what the image is. You walk up and you know that your name was on the list and that your name was placed there by God himself. It's to stand in God's presence. And this, to me, is, is one of the most profound parts of this image because it mentions God as judge. Imagine standing in the presence of God the judge who sees all and who knows all and yet to be found not guilty. To know that the one who sees all and knows all does not condemn you and finds you not guilty, but that you're absolved by him. And finally, it's to stand righteous and perfected, to not know shame because there is no longer anything shameful about you. That's the mountain that we have been called to in Christ. It's to experience the positive side of this numinous, the presence of God, but to do so in a way that's completely unlike the Hebrews. Well, why? I mean, I think this is a fair question, right? Like, what accounts for the difference between the two mountains? Did God change? That's what Nietzsche thought. Right? He, he separated the Old Testament God and New Testament God, right? the God of wrath and the God of joy and mercy and celebration. That's what Marcion, one of our first heretics in our, in our Christian uh, history, thought. Right, It was two different gods, two completely different people. So did God change? I mean, God, he used to be arbitrary right, and vengeful and capricious, but now he's kind and gracious and loving. But let's not forget that even at the foot of Mount Sinai, God was for the Hebrews, so did God change, or did we? What's the difference between the two mountains? You know, I was in college, 
Um, and I'd come back and take a summer job. I don't know if any of you, you know, did that when you were on break from college, but my summer job that I took was I took a job in construction. And I was a machine operator, so I got to be on the fun uh, construction equipment that my kids have as their Tonka toys, right? And I got to drive some of those things. And I was bad at it. I mean, I was, I was awful at it. I remember um, one of the, the first day, I get there and the foreman points to the machine. He's like, hey, get up there and you know, figure it out and just drive around. You can't hurt anything. It took me three hours to figure out how to operate it. I, started, I was using the clutch to try to drive it instead of the gas to make it go faster and slower. It was, it was a disaster. Um, on the, I think it was on the second week, I was backing up one of those machines. And by the way, a roller is the easiest thing on the planet to drive. There's, there's no excuse. I was backing up, and I smashed the water truck's engine so bad that I totaled one of the company's only two water trucks. I completely destroyed it. Week three, the pipe crew lays a bunch of beautiful pipe, and I run straight over it and smash up several days' worth of work. It was unreal. And yet... Yeah, oops, was right. And yet, the foreman and I got along famously. I had hour and a half lunch breaks. I got to travel around with him. It was, it was, it was amazing. And a few weeks in, about halfway through the summer, this other guy about my age, another young kid, comes up, and he's also completely green. He's got his, his stuff a little bit more together than I do. And he tries so hard. He works so hard. And yet, through all of his work, through all of his effort, he couldn't seem to do a thing right in the eyes of anyone else. And I felt awful for him. But it wasn't a surprise to me. And here's why. I knew, and the foreman knew, that the vice president of the company was my dad's best friend. And that relationship that we had, which I'm not proud of, right? I felt bad for him, so let's not say, like, how, buddy? I wasn't joining in. But that relationship that we had, the relationship that I had going into the job, made all the difference in my experience. Completely unfairly, but that was the case. When we look at the difference between the experience of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, it's not God but us, and it's the new relationship that we have with him that we've entered into by the blood of Jesus, which is better than the blood of Abel. And I think that's such a key point. If you know your Bible, Abel was the one who made the first recorded sacrifice to God, wasn't he? And Abel was the one whose sacrifice was accepted by God. It said that God regarded Abel. Just as God regards the presentation of ourselves as we come to the Mass, as we come to the celebration of the Holy Eucharist, and we present ourselves, our souls, and bodies. And yet Abel's best effort, his best intention, was insufficient to bring him to the Holy Mountain. It was only the sacrifice of Jesus, of God himself, that was enough to cover us. I mentioned earlier that God is a consuming fire that God sweeps through, that he's an unstoppable force. And if you hear of those who have survived fires, there's a story of a, a man with his son, and they're walking across the great, great Western Plains, and they see a fire raging. And, you know, fires move quickly. I don't, they move faster than a person can run, up to 50, 60 miles an hour sometimes if the wind has really whipped it up. And they're looking at this, and they see the fire coming across the plain, and they're not really sure what to do. They know they can't escape it. It's too wide for them to escape. It's too fast for them to avoid. And so, and so you know, there's only a matter of time before they're completely taken up in this fire. And so the dad starts to pull up the backpack and starts to kind of rifle through to see what it is that can avoid it, that can, that can save them from the presence of this fire. And what he does is he finds a box of matches. And he pulls them out. And the son said, Dad, what are you doing? We've already got a fire. Fire's coming. Like, we don't, that's not what we need. 
And the, and the dad says, hold on, son. Let me just take care of this. And the dad starts his own fire. And he lets it burn until there's about a 50-foot by 50-foot uh, circle around them. Uh, there's a way to say that, 50-foot diameter circle. And, and, um, and then he goes and he stomps it all out. And he says, son, come in the middle with me. We're going to wait right here for the fire to pass us by. And because they had burned away everything in the middle of that field, the larger fire that was coming had nothing else to grab onto, and it went around them and continued on. And they were saved. When we think of the blood of Christ that has been given for us, the sacrifice that has been made that is better than the blood of Abel, what we see is that God has preempted the wrath that is to come by pouring it onto himself and providing a place for us to take refuge place for us to rest in as the wrath of God passes over. That's why the blood of Christ is better than the blood of Abel. And where Abel's own blood that was spilled out in murderous vengeance by his brother Cain cried out for vengeance, the blood of Christ proclaims our forgiveness. It's through the covering of his blood that is not God who has changed, but us. Because the God of Mount Sion is the God of Mount Sinai. But our relationship with him is what's changed. Which brings us to our second and final point. So therefore, what is acceptable worship? In the face of this reality of God, what's acceptable worship? Well, we mentioned earlier that this text follows the pattern of a call to worship, right? We worship God what? For who he is and for what he has done. Well, a call to worship, as with any call, demands a response. Call to worship, as with any call, demands a response. My last story about my upbringing was um, I was raised in Sanford. Y'all familiar with Sanford? It's not too far away, right? And um, we lived on, we had this old 1940s house that was uh, a property of about five acres. And this house had a unique feature that I'd never seen anywhere else. It had little, little white bells on the inside of the house. Have you seen these before? They were buzzers. It was kind of like a doorbell on the inside. And you'd push it, and we'd have these speakers outside that would buzz so you could be heard from, I don't, I'm not even entirely sure how far away. I'm sure it drove people crazy because we were, running, we were kids running around pushing them. And what my parents realized is when it was dinner time, rather than getting the old triangle out and, you know, like banging on that thing, all they had to do was push a buzzer. But what they didn't realize is it mattered who was pushing the buzzer, right? Like depending on whether it was my mom or my dad, my mom's lovely woman. Mom, if you're listening to this, I love you. Um, she's a lovely woman, but, you know, she, she, she loved us greatly and was, was maybe a bit indulgent. And, you know, the per, you know the person who counts to three and adds like two and a half, two and three quarters, two and seven eighths to give you a chance to come when you were a kid. And so, you know, if she was the one that was home pushing the buzzer, we had kind of a meandering path. We might, you know, pick up a few more bugs on the way or make our way there. And when my dad was home and the buzzer was pushed, you've never seen little legs move quite so fast. Right? It mattered who was making the call. So when we say we worship God for who he is, who he is and what he has done... Who he is matters a great deal. And that's why the author of Hebrews spends so much time reminding us of God's character and what he's done on our behalf. You know, if God were merely to be feared, if God were a tyrant with no regard for us, our response to him would be begrudging, resentful, and half-hearted. You ever work for a tyrannical boss or work under somebody who is just a taskmaster? When they come, do you, do you respond happily? Do you rush to them? Is it begrudging? Are you resentful? Is it half-hearted? If that was all God was, then he wouldn't get the fullness of our response. Or if God were merely an offer of himself to the point of self-negation. Anybody ever read The Giving Tree? 
where you just give and give and give of yourself until there's nothing left and you make no asks, no demands, you don't call anybody into anything greater. If that's who God was, then our response to him would be one of neglect, apathy, and absenteeism, wouldn't it? But God, as the author reminds us, is the God of both Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, the one whose voice shakes the earth and yet offers us a place in his unshakable kingdom. And so proper worship, the only conceivable response to a God like that, who instills in us fear and trembling, fascination and attraction, is the offer of worship with reverence and awe. Amen.